The following program contains mature themes that may offend you and challenge you. As a result, you may paint an innumerable amount of Bristol boards, piss, and exhale fire, call for the host to be disemboweled in the village square, push for suppression, compelled speech, and an infinite number of deplatformings. Other listeners may experience the urge to laugh as we all hurl towards Armageddon, tolerate diversity of thought, control their childlike emotional impulses, stop taking everyone and everything so seriously. But either way, listener discretion is advised. This is Unmentionable, an unhealthy dose of realism with your host, Jordan Power. Welcome to another week of Unmentionable Podcast. We are broadcasting live from Toronto. My dog, Bruce, is underneath us. He's not usually with us because he runs around and stuff like that, but... He is uh, very needy because I've been in California for the past 10 days. Shivy, my wonderful producer, took care of him for three days and then left his pubes in my washroom. Explain yourself. <laughs> Those are my hair, not my pubes. Like, actually, I have long hair. I don't have pubes. I always so the, keep they, them shaved. The pubes were about an inch and a half. So yeah, your hair is, not. is how long? Probably hair from, like, other parts of my body, maybe. I don't know. Can you insert your pubes in the show? As like a photo <laughs> to prove that, <laughs> hey, look, everyone. <laughs> Maybe in Patreon, not on YouTube. He, he's very nice. Took care of my house, took care of my dog for a few days before I gave him to the dog sitter and cleaned up, took the garbage out, and then just left a couple pubes <laughs> as, a, as a nice gift. I, I did. As a reminder that he was here. No, I don't have pubes at all. They have been removed. No, I have pubes. I Don't get me wrong. I have pubes in several people in California saw them <laughs> near their face. Near their face. But, <laughs> and they were both under 25. Okay, again, but that's not what I'm talking about. Hey. But I lost, before we went to California, yeah. speaking of pubes, I lost, I didn't lose it, but I broke the, the trimmer guard. You know the oh, guard yeah, yeah, that you yeah. put on, you can adjust the hair. So yeah. I, bro- I broke it. And then, um, should we kill this mic, by the way? Yeah. What, do I work here? <laughs> it doesn't really matter. So I think it picks up the background noise. <laughs> okay, go for it. Unbelievable. So I, I was just like, ah, fuck it. I'll just do like really close. But it's close. Like yeah. if you don't have the guard on it, it's like basically like shaving your pubes. Yeah. So it was uncomfortable for people to go down there. And you have to do this whole thing where like you look like a prepubescent boy. Because it's basically like you're shaved down to the end. So, so you never shaved down to the end? No, I always do. I leave a little something. Why? I like looking like a man. You. Yeah, so I like to leave a little something. I don't shave it completely, but then I always do this thing where I kind of, you know, explain to people before they go down there. Just I tell them the whole story. Just so you know, blah blah blah. I don't normally look like a little boy. Blah blah blah. It's you seem like a person who would shave it all the way. Like no. I, I shave it all the way. Like that's nothing, why I like know. Nothing? Yeah, that's I why I know. Like my my pubes wouldn't be one and a half inches ever. Like that. J- just this is when people are in yeah. denial and they're yeah. they're they're telling a, a tale. <laughs> no, it just feels uncomfortable. And with also with brown people, hair grow much more faster. But it was very curly, like a pubic hair. Could be my arm hair or something. You, I thought you were gonna blame, blame it on Bruce. Probably Bruce. Fuck you, Bruce. Bruce is very uh, <laughs> has very straight hair. Anyways, Bruce <laughs> is in here. Yada yada. Coming up on the show, June Joplin, a priest, is at Jr. Joplin on Twitter. Trans priest on the show was fired after coming out to the congregation 
at Lorne Park Baptist Church, where she has worked since 2014. I think this happened about a year ago. There's an ongoing lawsuit, $200,000 lawsuit. Um, I think it violates the charter, charter. I'm no lawyer, but... It seems to be discrimination on the base of gender identity. It seems like a clear case. I don't know. I don't know if the religious exemptions can go through. But that's a really interesting interview coming up on the show. Uh, we went about an hour, an hour and 20. Yeah, and super uh, interesting conversation. Super interesting. Great speaker, articulate. Yeah. I mean, speaks for a living, so probably <laughs> should be articulate. Um, yeah, so anyways, I came back from Toronto, and the first thing you I came said back from You came California, back to Toronto. California, sorry. Um, and, uh, I told Shivy, I was like, I think I'm ready to move to San Diego. Oh, yeah. So much so that I did email a lawyer that I know, an immigration lawyer to ask for advice on next steps. Oh, and the person thought it was like a rash decision. And I was like, no, I'm here's the case for San Diego. Uh, not only is the weather completely perfect, the people are so warm and just want to tell people who live here who think I'm a raving right, left, centered lunatic, whatever prism you're looking through. San Diego has 77% of their population fully vaccinated, which is less than the province of Ontario that I live in and Shivi lives in, which is a population of 14 million people. And they have no mandates, no mask mandates. The culture is completely different. And if you don't want to, if, if you're one of those people that goes like, I don't really care about the mask. Uh, it doesn't provide an impediment to my life. I just want to tell you, until you don't know, like, it, until you take off that mask and start interacting with people again. And I'm talking about people working at stores. I'm talking about people like your server at a restaurant. You don't realize how much you miss your previous life and how closed off we are. I mean, I'm talking 70, 80 year olds going for lunch with their friends hugging kissing oh, and not having any issues with covid versus 20 year olds in my building that won't get in the elevator with me fully vaccinated in a mask so you have to understand that some of this stuff is a little cultural at this point and there is an ethos in this society that um, we have an inability to tolerate a level of risk as i previously talked about but in san diego it's just wide open the only exception being is if you're in an uber you have to uh, wear a mask it's just a company-wide policy but other than that you can walk into your hotel any store it like their life's completely normal and so i just saying if less of their population is vaccinated and they are 100 normal why are we not even close so it what could be the explanation i think the explanation is probably they have more hospital capacity but they also have a very healthy culture they're always outdoors. They're always exercising. Lots of vitamin D. And I looked at the cases in San Diego today of, of COVID, and it's just they're not getting the kind of spikes that we're getting right now in some form of lockdown, more vaccinations. So I just wonder how much this stuff works. And I have said on the show, you know, the efficacy of the mask seems to keep dropping and dropping and dropping. First, I was reading that it was 50%. Then it was 40%. Then I cited a study on this show saying the efficacy of a cloth mask was 10%. Another study backed it up saying, well, no, it's actually much less than that because once you leave a gap and your face is moving and the mask is moving around, you have more gaps, it can drop to 3.6%. And now this is a really interesting article I found on Substack, which you'll barely find in the mainstream media, but it's really well researched. It's called, The More Masks Fail, The More We Need Them. Subheadline, masks aren't working anymore, so we must keep using them. 
When the CDC changed their guideline guidance sorry, in May to say that vaccinated individuals no longer needed masks, many in the general public thought it signaled the end of the pandemic. The majority of politicians quickly dropped most COVID-related restrictions because, as many of us have been saying for a year, masks were the visible reminder that the country was in the middle of a pandemic. As we've seen afterwards, that was unfortunately wildly incorrect. Testing inescapable media panic and the incompetence of public health officials resulted in an unending pandemic under current definitions. The CDC's devotion to pseudoscience and the organization's apparent predisposition to irrational fear, impossibly poor risk analysis, and their recent expressions of doubt on the long-term efficacy of the vaccines have made it abundantly clear that they have no end game for COVID. Except San Diego. Their decision to return to recommending mask mandates for all, the death of science as it were, has been followed by many corporations, cities, and several states, and there is no vaccine on the horizon to provide an easy way out. What possible justification can there be for them to revert back to their guidance on vaccinated masking? They've now downplayed the efficacy of the vaccines they've relentlessly pushed and refused to acknowledge the reality that COVID cases will always exist, especially with how hard we look for them. What is the endgame? While we have no way to predict how far down the anti-science rabbit hole the CDC will continue to sink, we can continue. We can look at how their guidance, their recommendation to wear masks, is faring in a number of areas in the U.S. and beyond that have followed their evidence-free advice. So we're going to post the article in the show notes, but it's really interesting. It goes through different states, like the example here is Louisiana, and it shows you that what happens after uh, a mask, because there's not just two ways you can look at it. You can look at a study that says how effective is the mask in keeping out micro droplets, which is the majority, uh, sorry, micro aerosols, which is the majority of the transmission. Uh, but then you can also look at when we add the mask, what does it do to cases? Does it have a measurable effect on those cases? And this article makes the case where it goes through different states and it shows when they throw in the mask dated, or mandated mask out of desperation, a lot of places the, the cases actually ended up going up. And there's a belief that some of the people would have the mask on so it could cause them to be more cavalier when it came to the virus. But it really lays out the case, uh, not just Louisiana, but different states here it goes through, um, Arkansas, Mississippi, and it's showing you Nevada, showing you different places of, like, for example, look at Nevada here. So it's showing you when the mask mandate ends, May, May 13th. Then you see a climb from little dip, but then a quick climb through the following months, June, July, and upwards on a respiratory virus, and then showing you uh, comparison states. And they did it with uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, the one state, similar geographic location, similar kind of people. You know, they add the mask in. Does it make a, a difference? Not really. It actually has an inverse relationship. Obviously, this isn't everywhere, but, you know, it really is interesting because it's like that seems to be still the ethos, almost dogmatic at this point around COVID is that like, well, just wear your mask. Stop being an idiot. And and the same people that will buy a f action figure of Anthony Fauci and talk about him on Twitter all day long will be the same people that it will ignore the emails where he says to his colleagues that those cloth, cloth masks don't work in private. Those are the same people. So I just realized some people aren't really going to get the point. And I'm not saying not to wear a mask. It clearly has some small, small, arguably negligible effect on cases. But it does seem to be at this point kind of an anti-vaccine stance. And it's very interesting to go on planes when you have a plane 
where there's 2,000 people on the plane, and the way that they got on the flight was by testing negative to COVID-19, and then I get on the plane, and my nose, or my mask drops about half an inch below my nose, and the stewardess runs over to me like I'm about to spread COVID to everyone on a flight where the vast majority of us are vaccinated and a flight where everybody needs to test negative to get on the flight. So, I mean, it's got a little psychotic. And so I'm back in Toronto now and I'm being like, are we like just an exception to the rule in general? And I'm also talking like Los Angeles. Like I was telling you the story when I was in Los Angeles where basically you would go up to a bar, you'd walk up, they would check your ID, they would check your vaccination record, which anybody could forge. And then you had to put your mask on to walk into the bar, which is about uh, five steps, five to, to ten steps to walk into the bar where you would remove it and then dance dance with arguably about five hundred to a thousand people. <laughs> and we're all just doing these things. We're just doing these things over and over because they're just sort of built into us, or the people that are making the rules are just looking for some weird way to tell you that they're going to be able to control a virus, which I think we've made the case on this show that they can't just tell you virus that they can't. Virus. virus skin a virus. Yeah. Someone's been listening to taglines of the show. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, I had a great time in uh, California. I'll talk about it a little bit on the Patreon. Um, Patreon.com slash unmentionable podcast for thanks, everyone who doesn't know. But I did, will say, I will say one of the coolest things when I was in my hotel room one of the coolest things, and I would say even better than the real Olympics. Have you watched the Paralympics? Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 I have. I mean, that is really cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I watched this uh, volleyball game where it was, I think, as a way of like leveling everybody. So as different people didn't have their legs or you know muscular issues with their legs. So to, to sort of level the playing field, they all had to play volleyball sitting down. Oh. So they would sit on the ground and play volleyball. Yeah. And it was China versus United States. It was like a gold medal game. And it was amazing to watch. Like, because you never seen anything. Uh, the US one. Oh, wow. Now, I did ask my friends this, and I wasn't even trying to be funny. I said, is it possible that those Chinese para- Paralympic uh, um, players aren't actually, like, they don't actually have problem with their legs? They didn't used to have problems with their legs. It's just that the Chinese government broke their legs for talking oh, about the virus. bro. <laughs> Bro. Is that possible? <laughs> I just wonder. For, for talking about the virus. They're the people that initially talked about the virus. They actually <laughs> are former employees of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they had working legs. <laughs> and then China just came in and, and said, now you're going to be in the... Downside, the, the silver lines, you get to be in the Paralympics now, but unfortunately, we're going to have to break your legs and lower your social credit score. <laughs> Anyways, America won the game. Wow. But it's it's so interesting because you see them go to the break when they're playing and some of them will like limp. Yeah. Because they, they literally, but then slip. some of them get up and walk. And you kind of have a moment, you're like, huh? What Wait? the f- Bro. And I think it's because they can yeah. probably only walk for small periods of time or kind of limp over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there is a part where you see them break and you're like, you feel like it's like you've been lied to <laughs> and they just get up. They're playing on their, they just get up and like stroll over. It's like politics. Yeah. It's like every fucking politician we talked about on this show. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. But I mean, I, I avoid LA because any conversation I've had with a person there is awful, including the ones that are listening to this show. Probably. No, I, uh, LA is just not for me. I will say. I don't think I probably will ever go back there. Uh, again, I'll probably be dragged back there. But it's just, <laughs> there's so much pretense. I just love San Diego so much. I just want to move there because I just, I like, 
I'm over that phase in my life. I'm over that, like, looking over someone's shoulder, social climbing phase of my life. And West Hollywood, just is too much for me. It's too overstimulating. They have free I, free HIV tests on the corner. <laughs> they have a truck that gives people free HIV tests on the wow. corner before you go to the bars. How How does it happen? You just can walk in the back and get a free HIV test. I just think it's very, that's like a weird. Is it like a COVID test, but in your butt? Or something? No, it's a standard HIV test. They probably just take your blood or something like that oh. and then do like a rapid test. But it's just weird to be walking with your right. friends to the bar and be like, hey, just guys, second, just I just want to see I have, I have AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> you guys want to go to Revolver or High Tops? Hold on, I just got to see if I have AIDS. I mean, that, that would ruin your night. <laughs> it's it's a little weird. <laughs> guys, I'm sorry. I'm going to go pee and then I'm going to check for HIV. <laughs> There's like a woman like ushering people as if at, on like they're like strolling. I just I just think I understand it as a public health thing. But yeah. I think it's like it's like 1 a.m. And there's a truck outside a nightclub <laughs> saying like, hey, guys, hey, just come on in. It's free. It's like I don't even care if it's free. It just ruined my fucking night. The only thing waiting for in long line for a nightclub is finding out you have AIDS. <laughs> I think worse than that. It's finding out you have AIDS. Shout out to Los oh Angeles. Okay, let's get to the guest. J.R. Joplin, June Joplin, on Twitter. Enjoy our interview. Uh, and afterwards, we're going to do a little Patreon. Patreon.com slash unmentionable podcast. I'll talk about my trip. I'll talk about the things I can't talk about on this show. I need to pay well for them, frankly. So people will hate me. Enjoy. Come on. So we are sitting here with June Junior. Yeah. Which one? Junior. Junior. <laughs> I don't know why I want to go to June. I think it's because some of the articles said you had like said June is fine. You can call me June. June. Okay. Yeah. It's easier. So we were talking about that it's your first time in a month doing a sermon as an out trans woman. Oh, it's first time ever. First time like in 18 months that I've been to church in person and that's going to be well in front of a congregation. I've been in some empty church buildings um, or church buildings with a few people that were doing a live stream. But in terms of like being in front of an assembled congregation of worshipers kind of in the quote unquote normal way that's happening for the first time really ever since I've come out and transitioned this Sunday at the Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto. Um, and we're, you know, we're registering folks in advance and we're keeping social distance protocol in place and we're limiting the number of people that can come to about 150, but it's going to be. So since, so for two years, you've been just doing Zoom? Um, yeah, yeah. Since, well, let's see. I guess a year. Even, a even before I came out, like when, when, Everybody kind of went into lockdown in March of 2020. <laughs> I, I heard somebody say 47 years ago this yeah. morning. It feels like it's been <laughs> that long. Um, we started doing church services at my former church on Zoom. And I've done so many Zoom sermons or even pre-recorded sermons that would get played on, you know, YouTube or whatever. So is it weird to preach and inspire over the internet it, it really is and, and it felt funny at first but you know it's it's become it's the way we do it now yeah but yeah. you know like i was talking to my colleagues you know our our senior pastor reverend jeff was trying to record his sermon last week and you, you know you're recording on you know 
Thursday night, Friday night, or just sometime before Saturday or Sunday. And there was construction in his condo downstairs and upstairs. And, you know, you want to hit record, but there's all this noise. Yeah. I was going to go record my last sermon in my backyard, but the air show was happening down at the exhibition oh, yeah. grounds. And so I, I'd get in the middle of a sermon and like one of those fighter jets would fly over and you couldn't who's hear anything. Still, can I just ask, who still wants the air show? Like who's dying for there? There's your problem. <laughs> it was so good. I went there for the first time. It, it's I think, it's obnoxious. It's an obnoxious. I think there's thing. a bitter divide about the air show. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I've heard that that people that are uh, first generation immigrants are triggered by it in the sense that it reminds them from of being back home and probably American imperialism to a degree. I think there's an argument for that. I my argument is just. I just loud. am fascinated by humans always need to see loud noises and yeah. banging and things. It just feels unnatural. It, I am constantly amazed at how loud the city is. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it started because I was trying to record things on Zoom or what, but, <laughs> you know, I, in my old place before I moved last year, um, I was recording a lot of sermons on Fridays. And Friday just happened to be the day that the townhome community next to my house would send in an army of young men with leaf blowers. And, <laughs> and it would be like seven or eight of them going at once. And I don't know. I try not to like go into like angry old lady mode. But, yeah. y you know, you're like, what? how did we collectively decide that having clean lawns was worth not being able to hear ourselves talk at cafes. Right. Or yeah. I mean, it's so loud. It's noise pollution. It's also light so pollution. Much. Like you go into nature and you say, I mean, I was just in Palm Springs. Yeah. And you, at night, you're like, oh, there's stars. Stars are a thing. That's right. Yeah. You yeah. just forget you about stars. You forget <laughs> about that beauty. I mean, metropolitan centers, they just sort of suck all the beauty natural beauty i mean it's like when you call this the environment it's not really the environment yeah. we just build these skyscrapers and the greenery just keeps yeah. going down every year and I, I think i don't know if it's an age thing but being in california i sort of was like oh i'm done over i'm done with big city living yeah oh i just goodness. i'm too old for it i i'm easily annoyed by sounds and different things and i'm just kind of like yeah this would be a better transition we're don't get me started about california too much <laughs> well, I grew up in a small town in the southern United States, and I used to, when I was a kid, every chance I got, I would go, well, when I was, I don't know, a teenager in my 20s, I would go to a city. I would go on vacations to like New York or San Francisco, places like that. I would go to trips to Atlanta, which was the closest major metro area to where I grew up, or Charlotte. And now that I live in Toronto, like, I just want to get away. I love, I love Toronto. Uh, I love a lot of things about it. I love living in the city. Um, I love getting down by the lakeshore and looking at the skyline. And I just think, gosh, I can't believe I live here. But then, yeah. you know, there are things I miss about small town life too. Well, do you, do you miss the fact that, and I, well, this is, I think would be the thing I couldn't stand is it feels like people, everyone would know your business in 3000 people. You're right. Yeah. To some extent. And I know folks who live in smaller towns, even like here in Southern Ontario, that have that experience yeah. uh, they feel like you know that's such a small community i i tell people like my my the population of my hometown would fit on a busy go train like <laughs> yeah or it's a, even like a, a good a commuter small train. concert in, in toronto oh yeah yeah three thousand people is not much of a turnout i guess yeah <laughs> so what is what was your childhood like well i grew up in um western north carolina um not far from Asheville, not far from charlotte um in a really beautiful place um, small town, uh, grew up, um, really 
I, I grew up in a family that was active in our little Baptist church that was almost within walking distance of my home. That church was very proudly fundamentalist. You know, sometimes the word fundamentalist is kind of is a label that people on the outside give you as almost like a pejorative, but you know, we really embrace like we are fundamentalist Christians. And I was kind of unaware of all the, I guess, like theological and political ramifications of that social location. But I just knew church was the center of our life. You know, I was at church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and often Wednesday nights. And then the the church had this little private Christian school that I attended from kindergarten to grade six. And so I was literally in the building six days a week. Um, and so it was very much the center of my life. Um, it was a pretty good upbringing. There's not much I can complain about. Um, I, you know, I'm the oldest of a pretty big family. I, I had lots of cousins. We, we played in the woods. We played in the creek. We rode our bikes. And I would say, you know, when it comes to a sense of gender identity, it was very faint in those days. There, there was something there that, you know, I realized, like, if you're assigned male, you can't like girl stuff or you're going to get in a lot of trouble or there's just going to be so much stigma. And you know, like I rode my bikes through the same mud puddles that my sisters did. And I played in the Creek and climbed trees just like my sisters. And there wasn't, you know, growing up in that small town kind of rural upbringing, there didn't seem to be like a very pronounced difference between what boys could do and what girls could do. And Mm -hmm. Which, which ironically seems like a more progressive stance that you wouldn't think of a conservative place. Yeah, I mean, there were there were certainly some parts of our socialization that were heavily gendered, but you know, just when you're when you're prepubescent, when you haven't hit puberty yet, when you're just like you're just kind of a kid, you know, in that that sense of um, incongruity that a lot of trans people feel um, doesn't become very pronounced until maybe a little later just because childhood you, you is just kind of childhood. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Until you divide. So what are the first uh, examples of experiencing that? Yeah, you know, I think when, when I was in kindergarten, you know, probably five years old, I can remember I had a girlfriend one afternoon and that's how long kindergarten relationships tended to last. And it, it was <laughs> Rough not... Rough breakup? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was terrible. Uh and it wasn't, it wasn't anything that I orchestrated or made happen, but there was a little girl in the class who said, you know, like, this is, this is going to be my, my boyfriend uh, for the afternoon. And, and all that really meant at the time was during free play, which was, you know, maybe 30 minutes or an hour of the afternoon, I went to hang out with her on, like, the girl's side of the classroom. And she talked to me a lot about um, Cabbage Patch Kids, and in this, in this way that I could never really articulate, there was just this sense that it was like, oh, this is like where I'm supposed to be. With that group. Yeah, but I can probably never be here, but this feels right in a way that, I mean, you're five, you, there's, you can't explain anything. And, um, and so, you know, I have memories like that. Uh, I remember, um, yeah, this is in one of, the, one of the articles that came out after I came out was actually written by a really brilliant and um, just wonderful trans woman writer named Emily Vanderwerf, who's an amazing human being and a good friend. And she she writes about, and I told her about like um, 
going away to summer camp when I was 11, the summer between when I was 11 and when I was 12. And um, I spent the week sleeping in a cabin on an island in the middle of a lake in upstate New York, probably not too far from here. And uh, there was a boy's side of the island and there was a girl's side of the island. And it, I mean, it, it became really clear to me in a way that I can't quantify necessarily that, I, you know, I'm on the wrong side of the island. You Is know? it the way they talk? Is their interests... Love the female interest. I, I have no idea. It's it's it's. I guess it's, it's like different a kinship things. Almost. Yeah, and it's very difficult to explain. You yeah. know, it's it's tough. Like I I don't know that. You know, one one of the sometimes one of the frustrating things about being trans is that there's almost this expectation that you explain your gender, and and, and cis people don't tend to have to, to be. Um, they don't have that same expectation. You know, if you're a cisgender man, well, how do you know you're a man? And and it's very difficult to explain that without reverting to like biological essentialism. Well, I have these body parts, so that makes I'm a man. Well, what if what if you woke up in the morning and they weren't there? Would you still be a man? Right. And and but like cis folks, generally, this is one of the this is part of cis privilege is you don't have to think about that. You have this inscrutable gender identity that nobody ever questions and nobody ever asks you. Well, how do you know? Although I, I, you know, it would probably benefit cis people if they did think about that. Um, yeah. You know. Well, it's like when when someone explains that they're non-binary to me. My thoughts on the whole process. I feel like everyone's non-binary to a degree, but I feel like I've said this on a previous episode. I feel like there's a part of the non-binary conversation that's regressive because it solidifies gender roles. So what you're saying is, I don't feel like a man. But then my question is, well, what is a man? Yeah. And, yeah, and that to me feels like a socially conservative position because when you ask them, well, I don't feel like a man because men are aggressive, this, yeah. and I say, well, I'm not. And so that's the conversation that I've always, I don't think someone has properly explained that to me, that conversation, uh, because I say to Shivy, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm a business owner, I'm alpha, I'm goal-driven, traditionally male qualities, whereas I'm also more emotional in, so, in several respects. And so I'm like, I guess... I think in a way that I can kind of understand that, but I can't, I think when you kind of explain these things, I think, I don't know if it's in my head, but like something stops me from wanting to express myself too much. And I don't know if that's just gen gender expectations, society, but like, you know, some guys, some gay guys will want to paint their nails or yeah, kind of go down yeah. that route. And I don't have that. And yeah. so like, I mean, that's, that's how I would think being a male. But like, I guess my question for you is like, is it like, when you were younger, you would try to mimic things that the girls would do, mimic female clothing. I would say probably not too much just because that's, that's something that's very much off limits for folks that are assigned male. You know, it's, it's been one of the discoveries I've made is I've um, made trans peers, you know, both trans men and trans women. And, and I, I hesitate to generalize because you know, one of my friends likes to say, if you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. Like all our yeah. stories are different. But I've met trans men um, who pretty much didn't have to buy new clothes when they transitioned. Because they were already riding that they gender were line. They were already, yeah, their presentation. My stepsister's like that. Was already yeah. very masculine. Right. Very masculine coded. Um, whereas there doesn't seem to be a category. And, and, and you know, when you think of, when you think of, of women, there, there seems to be a lot of space for women to be either really feminine presenting or very masculine presenting. 
um, there doesn't seem to be quite the same space with men to modulate towards femininity. There, there's something, there's a, there's a trans um, academic and writer named Julia Serrano who coined the term ephemomania, which is what, what she describes as this kind of pathological fear of femininity in men. And, and so like, I don't know, when you're a kid, I don't, hopefully it's not as much like this anymore, but I know when I was a kid, like the, the one year that I very unwisely attempted to play football, um, all the coach had to do to insult us was call us ladies. Right, or throw like a girl. Yeah, you throw like a girl. Right. Or, or, you know, if you cry, you, then cry what like are you, a girl? Yeah. And then girl has a negative connotation, which informs how you'll treat women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's funny. One of the, one of the really, um, uh, one of the, the really awkward moments, it was, it was comically awkward. I was, um, I was visiting my family um, at, at a beach in South Carolina, and one of my favorite things to do when I go to the beach is go to the outlet malls. You know, I just love, I actually really like shopping. I've always liked shopping and I don't know, like you can take that for what it's worth, but it is a more female quality. It, yes, it tends to be, but uh, you know, um, know. And, and so like my family's all lying by the pool doing things that I think a lot of folks like to do at the beach. And I'm saying, okay, I'm going to go to the outlet malls. Does anybody want to go with me? And everybody's like, no, I don't really want to do that. And I said, well, okay, I'm going to go by myself. And this was of course, before I transitioned and my, my mom looks at me and says, what are you a woman? Mm-hmm. And and this was after I was self-accepting after I had come out to my ex spouse. And so we just kind of exchanged one of those looks like, Oh my God, what did she just say? But it was, you know, and, and it's almost like, I don't think my mom, obviously my mom wasn't intending to insult me. It was more like a, she was just kind of making a joke, but it is kind of funny how maybe with less frequency, but the history has certainly been, if you want to insult someone who is a guy, call him a girl yes and so yeah there's not as much space i think unfortunately for for men to explore anything that is considered feminine yeah there's an um, uh, there's a there's a documentary called the mask we wear i think it's on netflix oh yeah and it talks about they believe a lot of the root of uh sexual violence by men has to do with how they grow up so emotionally constipated mm. Um, and then they believe that's how they will treat women over time. I, the thesis, I think, could be flawed in some ways, but definitely I experienced that when I was younger. I mean, I was an effeminate gay man growing yeah. up, so I would be teased, bullied, my lisp, you know, feminine-like qualities that I would express, and it, what's so interesting is that, like, I don't know if this, this happened with you, but, like, you kind of, when you're younger, I was very flamboyant and myself and effusive, and then I learned from society various cues over time yeah. to sort of put that away yeah. It, yeah. because I need to be a chameleon and I need to fit in and you social compliance, yeah. of course. And I, and I lost the most beautiful parts of myself in yeah. that process. I, I, there's so much of this that I'm processing, like looking back, you know, I, one of the things I tell people is I wasn't, I wasn't walking around for decades saying, oh my God, I'm really a woman, but I can't transition. Like I, I, I would have thought, gosh, it would be great if I'd been born a woman, if I'd been assigned female at birth, that is, but you know, I'm, I'm not trans. Okay. I just didn't understand what it meant to be trans. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that's been, I don't know, that's kind of been now, now that I look back and realize, oh, these memories are the memories of a closeted, repressed trans woman. Oh, some of these make a lot more sense. I like to talk about my two favorite shirts when I was in high school, and this was in the 1990s. And uh, my favorite time. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> well, there were there were some really fun like 
fashion stuff going on in the 90s. Some of it is cycling back around, but there, you know, so the two things that I really wanted to wear in high school, I really wanted like a, a silver shirt, like a shiny, oh, yeah. shimmery silver yeah. shirt. And, you know, growing up in the small town that I did, there wasn't <laughs> really the only clothing store in town is like a workwear slash Western wear store, <laughs> you know? So if you wanted a good pair of like boot cut Levi's, which are good in certain situations, that was a place to go. But so I had to drive to like a mall, like far away and I'd saved up my money and I bought this really, it was sort of, I don't know, almost like a, like a vintage, had a, like a, like a spread collar, almost like a bowling shirt, probably. It was a men's shirt. Yeah, it was. Okay. And, um, and it was silver, like shimmery. Oh, it was so cool. <laughs> my other favorite shirt I bought probably around grade 10. And the best way I can describe it, it was the most blousy thing. Like it was silk. There was, I don't, you know, in, in the 1990s, silk shirts are really big, especially in the early 90s. Um, if you can imagine like Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer, In Living Color, like that era were just so much color. Nobody's clothes fit the right way. They were all too big and like. It's kind of coming back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, yeah. yeah I, it's it's wonderful. Um, and so I went to this store in the mall that sold clothes like that. And I bought this shirt that was, silky and like every color of the rainbow super bright super loud these are my two favorite shirts each one i wore to high school one time only because walking around in these like this is not like a flannel shirt or like a a, a hoodie or like what most of the other people uh most of the other guys would have worn around my high school i realized like people are looking at me funny i'm visible in a way that i'm not comfortable with and so those two, my two, really my favorite pieces of clothing hung in my closet unworn throughout high school. And what, what I wore instead was like, I had this forest green uh, sweater and I had this burgundy sweater. They were the same sweater. They were both like extra, extra large or extra, extra, extra large. They were huge. And I wore them every week. I wore them once and sometimes twice. So like three out of the five days of the week, I'd wear this just big, formless, dark sweater to kind of cover myself up and in part you know you get those social cues that say it's poignant in a way because you're just expressing yourself you don't wear stuff like that yeah you know your high school has the largest future farmers of america chapter in the whole state it's not the kind of place that you can nothing against future farmers of america they're you know but that was just kind of the culture of my high school it's a smaller minded place you you didn't you didn't dress that way wow you could if you had but you also had to wear this armor that said, you know, when people look at you funny, yeah, you just meet their gaze and you say, I don't care. Yeah. And I hadn't grown into that. Well, I, I think most kids don't. Most kids don't can't no. don't have that arm. I mean, I think some people have instilled in them a confidence very young, and they can they can just push through. But most people will socially comply, yeah, just to avoid any sort of conflict. I think it's just in us. Well, I, I'm I'm learning how to do that, and in this version of myself now, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I say on one of my, my Twitter bios, like I'm either a basic suburban mom or a sign of the end times, depending on who you ask. But I mean, really like that's no joke. Like I, you know, I live kind of in the suburbs, you know, I have a, a somewhat suburban life. I find myself like at soccer games and hockey games doing things that are, that are, you know, fairly heteronormative, I guess. And, I just kind of try to blend in, you know, and, and I do that cause I like it, but also because, you know, you get those social cues that, um, this is not the kind of place to wear like a bodycon dress and 
six inch heels, even though those are fabulous. You know? Right. What is it? What is that transition period like? I didn't mean to use the pun there, but that period from when you were a child and you're sort of flirting with the idea. Because I remember you told one story about your dad found you yeah. wearing women's clothing. That period until you come out, are you just flirting with the idea or does it get stronger with time that you feel like, okay, I am trans? Well, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of LGBTQ plus people can point to, especially those of us that are, you know, don't have the benefit of growing up at this age where hopefully acceptance is better than it used to be it's still growing. But, you know, we, a lot of us talk about the understanding that this is just a phase. I'm going to grow out of it. You know, I've read, I've read the memoirs of other trans women who figured, you know, if I can grow up and marry a woman and have kids, like this will all pass. And I, I was never that calculating. I did just figure, you know, this is just one of those things that it'll go away. You know, um, I'll get busy doing life and I won't think about this. Does it just intensify over time and you can't ignore it? That's the experience of a lot of folks. Um, in my experience, I, I don't know that it intensified and it, it, it did seasonally, I guess. I, I think part of what I struggled with was, you know, you have the this sense that something is off about your gender, that you would, you know, that the gender you've been assigned is not right and that you would rather be a woman. And that's, you know, taking up space in your consciousness. And then you have this like, I just generally called it the darkness. <laughs> you know, I, I, I tried to talk to my doctors about depression. I talked to a couple of different counselors or coaches or therapists, and I knew I had these two things that were taking up a lot of space in my psyche. I had no idea that they could be related. Like nobody ever sat down with me and said, okay, this is what gender dysphoria is. This is what it does to you. These are the symptoms. And, and um, yeah, I just never – I. I I've been thinking a lot lately about what it would have taken, you know, in the 1980s or 1990s for somebody to say, you know, June, it's okay for you to be you. And it would have required just so much effort to make me feel absolutely safe. You know, I, my mom, who's, you know, had ups and downs with, adjusting uh, to my transition has occasionally said, you know, I, I wish I'd have known because maybe, you know, we could have done something to help you. And I just said, you know, there, what, what could there, what could we have done in our small town in the 1990s? Like probably not very much. You know? What do you predict she would have done if you told her earlier? Oh goodness. I don't know. I, you know, I think whatever she would have done in those days, they would have, I mean, this is the way so many parents do. Like they just, they just try to take care of their kids and they, sometimes they do really awful misguided things out of a really misplaced sense of love. But I, I think they're probably, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that That's kind of a dark path to go down. And I don't like to speculate too much about that because I know what she's doing now is that she's trying her best to accept me and, adjust it's been hard because she's known me she knew me as her son for over 40 years and that's not something that a mother just well i shouldn't say that there there are certainly parents that make that adjustment very easily yeah um and some don't and i think i spoke i spoke to someone the other day who whose daughter came out as trans yeah and like a trans woman and um like i mentioned to you it was 
I think we have to leave space. And I think the this person was kind of saying, like, I'm totally progressive. I'm totally accepting. I just need to grieve the loss. Yeah. I'm sorry, tra- transmit. Grieve the loss of my daughter. Yeah. And perhaps the people that uh, seem like they're a lot, it's a lot more expedited with them, perhaps they're not being completely honest. Perhaps they are. But I think there has to be a period. And it's tough because when you talk about the person, your journey, it's like the other person has to bring in their journey That's and they right. go like how I'm dealing with this and how I'm de- and it's kind of like it's not really about you. Yeah. But it is in a way because they knew a person for an extended period of yeah. time. It, it, it has been said that when when you transition, the people in your family transition too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be that can look a lot of different ways. And, and really, regardless of when it happens, you know, it, it, it does seem like if you're transitioning in very young childhood, the adjustment's not as big. But it does take, take some adjusting. And I think part of what's made things more challenging with my family is they're on the other side of an international border that hasn't been that easy to cross. And I haven't been to see them since I came out. So um, I don't know if getting down to visit them in person is going to be this breakthrough or if it it will continue to be kind of a, you know, a little bit of a challenging thing, but you know, I know my family loves me a lot. I, I, we talk, you know, we, we try to talk really openly and honestly with one another. And, um, do they say that they're, they're, some of this is challenging for them? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, and, and, you know, for my part, I try, I don't always succeed at this, but I try to be as gracious as I can and, and just make space for it. And, you know, I, I said to, you know, I said to my mom not long after I came out when she was really struggling with it, I said, you know, take the space that you need. Um, I believe in you and, and, you know, she's not given me any reason not to believe in her. Do you get any ignorant questions, questions from people? Um, I have, um, on occasion, uh, and, and, you know, usually, when that happens, it's just a matter of, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, who's asking this? You know, is this, we can, uh, folks can usually tell whether a question is being asked in good faith or not. Um, and so, yeah, you, you know, you always have the option to just shut things down and say, you know, it's not worth my time. But, you know, I got a few, um, I don't know if ignorance, or maybe it was from a place of ignorance, but, you know, I don't think, I mean, I think it was honest to goodness ignorance, not like a hateful ignorance. Like mm-hmm. I got a few of those questions early on and, um, you know, you always have the option of just saying, well, I'm not going to talk about that. But, but, you know, in the case of people that have been honest to goodness friends for a long time, you can say, well, that's not the kind of thing you should ask a trans person. But, you know, since we've been friends for a long time, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Well, I think it's like you have to fill the role of as edu- of educator because the question is if you're the first trans person they know, then you have to come into the situation and say like, okay, well, this like, I don't want this ignorant question to be asked to someone else, so perhaps yeah. I should just address it. Well, and that's that's something that you know everybody has to decide what feels comfortable with them. You know, in my in my former job, you know, one of the, I realized that you know when it, when it came time to vote on whether I kept my job or not oh, i realized we'll get to that, in a, that yeah was pretty uh, horrifying well I, I realized like you know if i if i keep my job it's gonna be really awkward 
you know, because there are people that have known me this old way for so long and people that don't know a lot about, you know, I might be the first trans person that they've ever known. And so, and there's a lot of religiously motivated transphobia. There's a lot of religious spaces where there's just a lot of ignorance about LGBTQ plus people. And, and I realized, you know what, like, I'm probably going to be exposed to that in a way that's going to get exhausting, but I felt at the time like it would have been worth sticking around to help people. Um, but that was my decision, right? Not everybody doesn't have to do that. Yeah. It's not, you know, people who historically uh, experience a, a kind of marginalized existence, it's not their responsibility. It's not our responsibility to educate everybody. Right, but the problem is, is if, if we don't, looking at human nature, the person will just say like, okay, I'm never learning Sometimes, about that. Sometimes, yeah. I yeah. think most people probably yeah. would just say like, you know, the last time I tried to learn about X, Y, Z, the person just yelled at me and shut me down. Yeah. So I, the LGBT people that I know, I kind of say like, again, it's they, you don't have to do anything, but I kind of say like, you know, I should probably address that with like, make it an educational moment for sure. them because then they will leave a legacy, you know, to our fellow LGBT people yeah. in a way. But I get it because, you know, I'm sure you've heard the most ignorant things and you just kind of say like, I don't have this energy for this. Yeah, this is just yeah, too much. exactly. Yeah. And, and that's been, I don't know, navigating coming out, especially like a public kind of coming out, you learn, well, you hope you learn. I still have a lot to learn about just like setting boundaries. Yeah. A public coming out. I'm sure the internet was super kind. Um, yeah, they were, you know, I... There was a lot of support and a lot of kindness, a lot. And then a lot of the, a lot of the hate, like it was just from places that it was so hard to take seriously, you know, like when, like when I, when I first was in the news and like, I don't know, CBC would tweet something about my story. I would look at the people making the worst oh. comments and it was people who were like, their other tweets were usually like COVID's a hoax. Like if you're wearing a mask, you're a sheep. President Trump is amazing. Get rid of immigrants. And I'm like, yeah, you're the kind of people that should hate what I'm doing. If you guys were, if you guys were supporting me, I'd be doing something wrong. And yeah. so, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. I mean, we're all in insular bubbles, right? I try to also remember that but sometimes you just say i don't even want to venture into that bubble yeah like yeah. i don't even want to go into that that bubble because it's just something that i can't even connect with yeah well and and you know there were some religious leaders who commented on my story um with some pretty hateful comments and and like what? they were the ones i expected um you know the creation museum guy from kentucky <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about yeah <laughs> I saw that in Bill Maher's documentary. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. he is in that. His name's Ken Ham. He made some comment about, you know, I don't know, some some horrible transphobic comment about, I think it was something about, you know, like she's really a man or he's really a man. He probably misgendered me as much as he could and like, you know, a sign of the, the end of days, which I really, in some ways, it's almost an honor that people think that like I, this one, this one-off trans woman up in Toronto has the power to usher in the end of days. It's like, so it's a lot of power. Yeah. yeah I, for one person. We're, yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, the internet is traditionally the dregs of society. So I, I think what I say when I go on the internet, social media and stuff like that, I always try to remember it through that prism. I'm like, okay, 
who really hangs out on the internet all day yeah. spewing hate is like people dissatisfied with their lives. So I don't think they realize how much they're telling us how dissatisfied they are with their lives yeah, yeah. by behaving like that. Because I think usually my position is if I don't understand something or if I don't like something, it's usually just apathy. Yeah. So I yeah, would just right. withdraw like, oh, this isn't my battle. I don't really know what like, okay, right. fine. But the fact that they can't practice apathy in the face of what is your journey just speaks a lot to the human condition. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I one of my biggest motivations in coming out the way I've, I, I did and what kind of animates me when it comes to responding to requests like this to come be on a podcast or do an interview or, or something like that is I, I think visibility matters. And I think there's still uh, the number is shrinking, thankfully, but there's still a lot of folks that just don't know trans people and or trans priests. Yeah, I mean, no, really? trans pastors, yeah, we're not, there. I mean, there are several hundred of us in North America, and we've been around since the, I mean, for a long time, like, there's stories of, one of my heroes transitioned in the late 70s, and she ended up working at a, at a Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, so we've been around, but there's still this kind of novelty, you know, and, and, but I just kind of wanted to put a human face you know, and I hope it's a non-threatening face, you know, again, like I, sometimes I feel like there's a little bit of pressure to, um, present in, in a way that people find, you know, palatable. Okay. Palatable. Yeah. 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 And I mean, like in some ways I feel like I have a little bit of privilege there. Um, because is it you appear your parents? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean in part. You yeah. know, I talked to um, I talked to a, a mutual on Twitter before I came out, and you know she's a bit of a trans activist down in the states, and she said, you know, like when you come out, you should be ready to get a lot of media attention because you've you're in a visible profession, you're white, you're reasonably pretty, you'll look okay on TV. So articulate. Like, she said, you yeah. know whatever the Canadian version of good morning America is, you should prepare to be on it. And at first I thought you're out of your mind, but, but I, I kind of took that to heart and said, well, if that's what happens, then I just want to put a good face out there. Well, I think it's because it's the nexus of two worlds. You've got the LGBT community, and then you've got the religious community, which traditionally have been at odds with each other. In, in some ways, yeah, for sure. Yeah. What is the Baptist church position on LGBT issues? I'm well, sure it's nebulous. Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. Well, for starters, there's really no such entity as the Baptist church. You know, when you think of other more, I guess, like hierarchical denominations, like the Catholic church or the Orthodox church, for example, those... Those um, entities have more, I don't know, their, their positions on things are more um, solidly communicated across different congregations. Like um, in certain instances, leaders like the Pope or archbishops or whomever can put out statements that effectively say this is the church's position on this issue. So like, you know, for example, a couple of months ago when Pope Francis said, we're not ever going to bless same-sex marriages because the church cannot bless sin. He's speaking pretty much for every Catholic in a way that like no Baptist can do. You know, if, if, you're, if you're the world's most famous Baptist or most authoritative Baptist, you don't have that kind of authority because every church is independent. So Baptists on the whole, you know, if you, if you were to poll all of them across 
the world are, are fairly conservative theologically and socially and politically, but individual Baptist congregations have always been more progressive than other parts of the church. Canadian Baptists first ordained women to ministry over a hundred years ago in 1919 when very few Christian denominations were ordaining women. Now, my, my former denomination, Canadian Baptist of Ontario and Quebec, ordained women for the first time in the 1940s, but the denomination that had ordained a woman in 1919 was a traditionally a black African-American or African-Canadian um, denomination. But they had the freedom to do that because there was no equivalent to like a Baptist archbishop or Baptist pope mm-hmm. that could say, our church's official position is that women can't be ministers. And so like when I, you know, like I said, Nancy Ledens, who was a Roman Catholic priest who transitioned in the late seventies, when she got back into church ministry in the late eighties, early nineties, a Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina called her to be a lay minister. And there was nobody that could say, you can't do that because the members of that church did it. And 2014, when the members of Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. ordained Allison Robinson, who we, we are pretty sure was the first openly trans woman ordained in, in, in that tradition, there was nobody that could say, you can't do that. There were churches, there were other Baptist churches that could say, well, we're not going to be your friends anymore. We're not going to cooperate with you anymore, but they, they couldn't stop them from doing it. Is a lot, a lot of these people, it's, it's like they feign acceptance and then they show you the door. Not just in your case. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Um, and and sometimes, you, you know, this is where Baptist life, and, you know, I, I find Baptist life fascinating. Most people just like, you know, it's, it's, such a, it's such a small part of Christianity globally unless you happen to be from the southeastern United States. There are more Baptists in the southern United States than there are anywhere else on the planet. There are a lot in Atlantic Canada. There's a, there's a province in... The east of India, I think. I'm trying to think of where it is, where there's like a ton of Baptists too. Um, Guwahati. Near Serampore, I think. I don't know. Oh, I did a... I don't know. But, but that's, Google it. You have a Google in front it, of It's you. one of the... It, and I, I never heard that till I moved here. But, but um, oh gosh, what was I? Yeah, there, there aren't a ton of Baptists most places. So. so I think, I guess, before you decide to come out professionally... You come out personally to your is initially your 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 children and your partner. Yeah, well, the first person I came out to was my my partner, my ex partner. Okay, and How that's that been go? well. She was, you know, she was surprised, but you know, to her great credit, her first response was a loving and supportive one, um, and she has continued to be loving and supportive, although we we're, we're not married and. Um, we are really trying to amicably co-parent um, in a way that I think is, you know, more and more typical in 21st century life. Um, and, you, you know, the end of our relationship or the end of our married relationship has been not always the easiest. But I, the, thing, the thing I will kind of hold in my heart about that, that time is that, yeah, she could have responded a lot of different ways to the news you know, I've got questions about my gender identity. I think I might be a woman. Um, and she said, well, I love you and I support you. And that, that she made that her first response. And um, she deserves a lot of credit for that. I think a lot of people surprise us when we come out. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we take so much time to build up horror stories in our mind. 
and then we're you know we our mind will go to worst case scenario yeah i think it's like a trauma response and then initially when it happens you say you it's usually way less as bad yeah uh, especially well, now and and you know that is to say like we've continued to be in one another's lives and we've had some really bad experiences since I came out to her. It's been hard. It's been frustrating. It's been traumatic for both of us, but um, we've tried to be in one another's corner. You know, I, that was, that was a conversation we had early on. She said, you know, I'm, I'm in your corner and she is, and I try to be in hers and you know, as much as we can. Beyond, um, beyond the church, was there any surprising reactions in your life that you didn't expect? Hmm. Well, I think a lot more people were welcoming than I expected. I, what I realized as I started coming out to people is that I had subconsciously just been surrounding my pe myself with good, you know, accepting friends. I, I, I never sat down and said, you know, I don't want anybody in my friend circle who would have a problem with me being trans, but that's kind of the people that I curated as close friends in my life. Um, my best friend, Elizabeth, she's a pastor in, in New Orleans. Um, I came out to her three years ago this month, I think. We were at this continuing education thing down in the States. And and um, that afternoon, we went to the mall together on some free time. We were looking at women's clothes. And she said, you know, I never I never thought that we would end up being girlfriends shopping for dresses. Right. And, and I mean, like, without missing a beat. Like, And she had known me for 15 years at that point and just and, and you know she it's funny she was we were we were on the same church staff together for a bit elizabeth and i and of course that was before transition you know different different way of presenting different name all these things and she she said you know i was thinking about that old job where we worked together and i was like what was that guy's name that i worked with and like i totally forgot it was you <laughs> so like she she almost can't conceive of me ever having been that other person which is I think that's a mark of really amazing friendship. And I've, I've had friends that say like, I can't remember what you used to be like. I can't remember what your name used to be like. And it's, and these are people that have known for decades and it's just, you know, the, the response that always makes me feel really good is when people see me and when they see June and they're like, yeah, of course that's you. Yeah. You know, this is so obviously who you are. Um, and I love that. Is there a period where you have to say goodbye to your old self? Oh, yeah, that takes place over, I mean, I still kind of am doing that, you know, every day. Like, I, I jump on Facebook and click on the memories button. Who knows what's going to pop up? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, all changes, good, bad, or otherwise, require that kind of processing. And, um, and m for the most part, you know, like, I think one of the, I had this experience not long ago, of course, you know, shopping in stores hasn't really been a thing for very long, but when one of the lockdown restrictions ended, I was taking something back to a department store and it was one of these like mall department stores where you walk in the entrance and you can see the gendered clothing on opposite sides of the stores. And I looked to my right and there's all the men's stuff. And I was like, Ugh, I don't, I don't have to go there anymore. It's so limited. <laughs> and too. I look to the left. I mean, some of it's so really limited. lovely, but yeah. and I look to the left and there's all the women's stuff. And I was like, ah, oh, that's my place. And like knowing, like, I don't have to go sort through khakis and, you know, plaid shirts. My and, friend's a gay man. And he always yeah. says that he wants to be a woman because he loves fashion. And there's yeah. just so much different selection. And, and I remember making that same observation to my friends. Like, um, 
in the church, there's a holy day called Pentecost, which happens 50 days after Easter. And that's kind of where the name comes from, Penta 5. It's, it's, and um, 50 days after Easter, the church celebrates its birthday. So in, in, in the Gospels, the stories told of Jesus, of course, dies on the cross, is, is risen from the dead, and then ascends into heaven and says, just wait. The Holy Spirit's coming, God's presence in the world, and it's going to inspire you to like continue my movement in the world. And when that happens, the church, as we know it, is born, and that's called Pentecost. It, it took its name from a, a Jewish festival that they were celebrating at the same time. And so the, the color for Pentecost is red because it's, um, it's evocative of like fire. Um, it's symbolizing passion and inspiration. And so like one of the things that churches often do on Pentecost is they say, okay, wear your red stuff to church. And like I have a friend in Washington, D.C., and every year she gets a pair of Pentecost heels and they're so amazing. And, you know, I go looking for red stuff. Before I transitioned, I remember I was shopping for a red suit and I, you know, walked by a Banana Republic store and, you know, every suit in Banana Republic is the color of like gravel. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah, either, definitely. it's like gray yeah. or it's brown or it's black. Terribly fitted too. And, <laughs> you know, they're, they're okay, but like yeah. they're, the colors are not, but then like there was a women's suit, like there were these two mannequins in the door, literally. And I took a picture of this and sent this to my friend and said, this is not fair. Yeah. And so here's this, you know, gray khaki, whatever, maybe olive, if they're getting an adventurous men's suit across from this amazing, like fiery sort of orange red women's suit. And I said, this is not fair. Um, but for you, it is because you get to buy the woman's suit. And now, yeah. now I do, yeah. But in those days, and and you know, it's it's funny. There's not there's nothing saying you know you can't buy this if it fits. You know, but yeah, I, I probably it's a little bit economic driven too because I yeah. always kind of look for the explanation on certain like someone will say, oh, that's sexist, and it's probably because men consume more or they express less of an interest in fashion. It's you know, I think about this a lot. Um, and I've always been, I don't know. I, I've not been like obsessed with fashion. I've not been, I've not studied fashion. Fashion is this this huge thing that is so far beyond my understanding. But it's something, I mean, I like putting myself together, you know, and, and looking nice as much as I can in my budget and everything. And I, I think when, when I was dressing to present mail, there's this utility that you're going for. Like I can remember reading articles when I was just getting into my professional life that said, you know, here's how you build your wardrobe. And the idea is this versatility. You buy yourself a gray suit, you buy yourself a blue suit, you buy yourself some black shoes, you buy yourself some brown shoes, you buy yourself seven to 10 dress shirts and you are good for the rest of your life. Because the whole idea is like, you're not wearing stuff to necessarily be fashionable. It can. And Gosh, this is a whole other, this is just a deep, deep well here. But there, there is this utility that, that women's clothing doesn't always have. Um, I, went to, I went to a wedding a week ago, Saturday, for the first time since transition as a guest. And, uh, and I can remember in the before times just thinking, okay, I got a wedding to go to. I'm going to wear the gray suit. going to wear the purple tie. going to wear my brown shoes. Okay, done. And it's, it's this whole other thing, you, you know, you have to ask, you know, there, what's, what season is it? What's the weather going to be? Makeup, hair. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Makeup and hair, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> like, um, 
have have I worn this dress to yeah. any occasions before? Are there photos of me wearing this dress someplace else? God forbid. Like yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, like this I is all it. this is all kind of it's excessive consumerism. It, it can be, yeah. And this isn't these aren't necessarily the most redeeming qualities to have, but I mean, it's what it's it's kind of again you kind of get memos about how to how to how to be in the world, you know, and and so um and I was telling this to a, a cisgender uh, woman friend of mine. And she's like, I've got a wedding to go to next month. And I'm going through all the same stuff. It's like, okay, what season is it? What did I wear to the last event? Like, and, and there, there does seem to be this kind of, it, it feels like the priorities are different. Like, like your, your, your goal when you're dressing yourself as a man is different than your goal when you're dressing yourself as a woman. And, and like, I can only really, I, I mean, I say that from experience, but then in this very vague sense, I'm sure that there are folks, sociologists, fashion students, people who know a lot more about it that, that I'm, I'm like that, that could speak so much more eloquently to this. But for me, it's Do you know, Hardy like, has to, to get these gray sweatpants okay, the, on. This is a lot of like work. So simple. But I spent six hours shopping for my birthday just to just to find one really amazing like thing to wear. Yeah, and turned out it was for a woman. It's not men's. Oh. And I was like, no, I really want to buy it. And and then they were like, this so is just do me. it. Who I was going to, and then I was like, okay, you know what? Never mind. Like, I'll just buy it. I had a joke I used to do in my stand up, and it was gay culture is um, find out, finding out you accidentally bought a women's shirt and then falling in love with it the next day. Oh, my yeah. God. Because I had this shirt that I wore, and my friends used to make fun of me because I was wearing it. It was kind of like, you know, like they, it dips. Yeah. Like yeah. plunging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wore it because I was working out and I looked good. And my friend was like, I think that's a woman's shirt. Yeah. And he looked at the tag, and I was just like, eh, I love it. Who cares? Yeah. 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 I think that. Yeah, you know, and and ugh. we don't have to go. I'm to trying that to much. think of what story to tell here. <laughs> I'm let's probably going to the, let's go to back and buy it. I, I was listening to another podcast about history. How dare you? Ours I'm sorry. No, I was listening to a, um, a podcast about history, and they were talking about these. Uh, they were talking about Norse uh, mythology and like these th- these epic contributions to literature that that part of the world is given and. And there are these like kind of myths or epics about this particular woman who, you know, is, is sort of the, I, I can't remember exactly what made her so special other than that she was just this really prominent woman about whom there were a lot of stories. And she was married something like seven times and it was very difficult to get out of marriages in those days. But apparently, and this is, I, I really wish I had more details about this, but apparently at the time, one of the reasons you could divorce your husband is if he were caught wearing women's clothing. And so she like got some of his shirts and cut like deeper V's out of the collar oh. and then was able to say, you know, he's wearing women's clothing so I can divorce him. This is my kind of woman. What a crazy <laughs> story that is. Wow. And that's this ancient kind of, you know, um, epic or myth or whatever from Iceland or somewhere. Yeah. That's fine. I'm going to look that up. Okay, let's get to the meat here. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, so, okay. So, you started this church, Lorne Park Baptist Church, 2014. You came out June of last year in the in the live stream. I guess, how does one prepare a sermon? Because <laughs> here's the thing. You have to obviously espouse certain views. Yeah. But then at the same time, interweave your coming out as a trans person. Yeah. Uh, did you... Did you th- give us it was it thematically a certain way and then you thought oh, well this is the theme and i will also add this anecdote in or how did you come up with that yeah well okay so one of the things that i started doing 
after I became self-accepting and I just started reading a lot. I mean, that's really the story of me. The day that I came out to myself, I went to Glad Day Bookshop and in the village, the bookstore, and and said to the clerk, uh, the person behind the counter, you know, I have questions about my gender identity. What should I be reading? And I don't know. I just kind of, it started off like a research project. And so I started reading not just books about gender and books by other trans women, but there, there are a lot of trans voices in the church. There are trans Bible scholars, there are trans theologians, there are people writing, you know, brilliant perspectives on, on theology and, and transness. And one of the first books I read was called uh, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians by Austin Hartke, who's a trans man and a scholar of the Hebrew Bible and just wrote this brilliant book, um, weaving together I think good, solid biblical interpretation with some personal narratives of people that were trans in the church. But the second book I read was called Beyond a Binary God, A Theology for Trans Allies. And it was written by a cis woman named Tara Sowers, who's a minister in the States, but but her child is trans. And so she's writing to say, you know, here's what cis people need to know to be better allies to trans people in religious spaces. And I credit her for introducing me to that image. Um, you know, Jesus tells this parable about a guy who is a pearl collector, and he's at a market, and he finds this one pearl that he says, this is the greatest pearl ever. This is the most precious, valuable pearl I've ever seen. And so, like, he spends the rest of his day liqui- literally, like, liquidating all of his assets so that he can possess this one pearl. And so Tara Sowers wrote about how for a lot of trans Christians— Claiming our authentic identity is that pearl of great price. It's this very precious thing that we risk everything to, to hold. And I, and I was reading that and I said, you know what? I think I might know what my coming out sermon will be about. And, um, and so I, I had that scripture passage and I, I started from there. Um, I realized that I realized a couple things as I was planning one that I'm not going to be able to do this in front of a live congregation because COVID changed how we do church in March of 2020. And two, I realized like, I am not going to save my job with this sermon. This is not going to be a June saves your job sermon. Um, And so rather than preaching to that, rather than trying to like make this argument for like, here's why you should keep me as your pastor. What can I say to myself at age 11 or 12? What can I say to um, somebody that's like hopelessly closeted and repressed or afraid to claim their identity um, that I would have wanted to hear a pastor say? And, and that's kind of where the, that's what the sermon grew out of this idea that like you're your identity is, is this precious gift, even if it costs you a lot, even if you're told to be ashamed of it, um, you know, it, it's a gift. And, and, you know, beyond that, you know, as, as, as somebody who does church, does spirituality, like as somebody who's really taken her faith journey very seriously, and as somebody that's ordained, essentially the church has said, hey, you know, you're one of our leaders. You can speak for us. And I mean, it's a huge responsibility. But I said, you know, as one of those people, I want to say, like, I believe in a God that sees you and knows you, calls you by name, even if, 
you know, the people in your life dead name you or don't call you by the right name. And I, I just wanted, I wanted folks to hear that word. Um, if you had to bet your life savings hours before you did the sermon as to what was going to happen, what would you have said? Um, I certainly wouldn't have bet that it made the impact that it did. I, I can remember, you know, I, I literally had a conversation with one of my friends a month or two before and said, you know, like I could see this making like the denominational news in our little corner of Baptist life, but it's not like I'm going to be in the New York times or anything. And, and then lo and behold, like, well, I think what's interesting, it's kind of what I said earlier is that like to play devil's advocate, I'm sure a lot of people initially read your story and said, um, Oh my God, that's the Baptist church. Yeah. Um, uh, religion traditionally has a, a level of disdain for LGBT people. What did you expect? Yeah, there were a lot of folks who said that actually. Um, and yeah, there, there were folks who, who said that. I mean, there, there were folks who said, uh, it's Baptist. What do you expect? She should just go work in the United church. That was my some, initial reaction. Yeah, yeah. There were, there were folks who took it even further and said like, you know, what's the point of like her being a person of faith at all? And like, I certainly have a lot of trans women friends that are atheists. I, d- I did a show with um, um, a, a friend of mine in the UK who is both trans and an atheist. And she doesn't usually talk on her show about atheism, but she thought, you know, this would be an interesting. And like, I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. I mean, sometimes I'm kind of, I, I'd say like, sometimes I'm kind of envious of atheists because Sometimes I think life might be a little easier, or at least my journey might be a little easier if there weren't these religious considerations. Well, I think people feel like I, I think most people are okay with re- people's religions as long as it doesn't encroach on their yeah. own life. And it almost always does to a it, degree. It can. And, and, you know, honest to goodness, I think there are more and less societally responsible ways to do that. You know, like I, I point to say like the civil rights movement in the United States or the movement towards nationalized health care in Canada. Both of those were spearheaded by Baptist ministers. I do love how the evangelical Christians in the United States are against universal health care. It's, it's like what really would Jesus have crazy. wanted? Would he yeah, want a $200,000 bill? They don't, they don't realize like I, mean, I didn't, of course, I didn't know who Tommy Douglas was before I moved to Canada. But then, you know, lo and behold, again, like, here's this. Baptist minister from Saskatchewan who got into politics and is one of the most beloved Canadians. And, um, you, you know, we have that, we have stories like that in the States. I mean, when, you know, th- there's a, there's a great book called, um, just faith by Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. who's a gay Christian writer. And, you know, he kind of laments in that book, the, the fact that when Christian leaders who are progressive, try to make a difference in society out of their Christian faith. They're often not counted as faith leaders. And, and he, he cited like they did this list of hundred greatest Americans and there was a category for religion and it had folks in it like Billy Graham, but then Martin Luther King, who was a Baptist preacher who out of his Baptist faith, like was a leader in the civil rights movement. He wasn't counted as a religious leader. He was counted as like a civil political leader. Um, and so like we have these kind of categories um, you know, Martin Luther King was a Baptist minister doing Christianity. I mean, he realized like this is universally applicable. Like you don't have to be a Christian to want civil rights, but this is what animates me. And those stories don't always get told that well. One of the other things that, that Guthrie points out in his book is that when you do polling, at least in the States, 
there's something like 35 million Christians, professing Christians, who would say we're, we're fully accepting of LGBTQ plus people. So there are lots of us. There's probably percentage-wise about as many here in Canada. Well, I think it's a, that polling is flawed because there's a vast continuum. What's accepting? Please just don't live next door. Just don't run for governor. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, that's sure. fair. But but the idea is the notion that Christianity automatically equi- automatically equals like homophobia or transphobia yes. is that you know he's writing to challenge that narrative. And well, I think what you did was to, and that's part of what I was trying to do too. No, for sure, and that's what I understand. Is that like I think people like me who initially read your story and were like, well, it's kind of like that. What do they say, leopard eat, face eating party? You I got for that them? comment online. Right. Yes, yeah. that's kind of where I went. But then I also thought of the converse, which is, well, someone should change that, yeah. which is you. And I think so in that sense is like my initial reaction was like, well, why would you even try? But then the, but the alternative, but you've got to status yeah. quo. Yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, I always, always, I, I get a little anxious about drawing comparisons between like LGBTQ plus liberation and like civil rights. But, but I do know that civil rights leaders um, like Chris Scott King or um, John Lewis they said, you know, there's something, there's something similar between these two struggles. Like, you know, after John Lewis died, you know, there was that amazing overhead shot of the hearse carrying his casket that stopped in the middle of this rainbow painted intersection as an indication that this man who gave his life fighting for civil rights saw that the civil rights struggle of our time is the struggle for LGBTQ plus equality. So like, I, I, as a white person, I make those comparisons very tentatively, but I rely on the perspectives of folks like him. Of course. Um, one of my favorite stories uh, is from my mentor, who was a, a pastor in, in Western North Carolina, not far from where I grew up. And um, he effectively desegregated his church in the 1960s. There, there was a, the church constitution, the rules of the church made it so that black people could not become members of the church. And over the course of 10 years, over the course of a big, nasty fight, he helped change the church. And that all started on a Sunday morning when a black woman who was a school teacher in the neighborhood did what happens in Baptist churches at the end of the service. She walked down the center aisle and and uh, while they were singing a song and said to the pastor who was standing there, I want to become a member of the church. Knowing, I don't know if she knew or not, but he knew, like, they're not going to vote you in. These white people are not going to let you be a member of their church. However, I will fight for you and I'll try to change it. And that was kind of, I don't, you know, that became the arrangement they made. But, you know, I read that story and sometimes I've, I've wondered to myself, well, you know, weren't there historically black churches in the area that she could have gone to join? Like, why did she choose this church full of white people to say, this is where I want to be? But, you know, it wasn't fair that she was being excluded. And I don't know that she had that kind of activist mentality when she presented herself for church membership. She probably literally just wanted to be a member of the church. But throughout history, change happens when people kind of you know, erase the boundaries or step over fences or, you know, in in our story, like throw bricks and, you know, cups of coffee. It's like, it's like chipping away at the foundation slowly. So you come out uh, on the live stream and then you, you receive support from a bunch of people. Yeah. Lots. And then the church 
changed your email, changed the ID. Yeah, they, they, to this day, they do not misgender me. They, they're, they're really civil. They're really respectful. The church leadership has, you know, for, for, well, as a matter of fact, you know, right now I'm, I'm working on getting my ordination credentialing transferred to the International Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches because that's where I work now. And so last week I had to email folks at Canadian Baptists of Ontario and Quebec and say, hey, I need a letter saying that I'm a minister in good standing in this denomination. They're like, sure, June, like we'll send it. Just let us know where to send it. And so like within the day they had been like, you know, Junia Joplin is a pastor in good standing with the Canadian Baptists of Ontario and Quebec. So it's it's kind of like, as far as I know, I'm still the only trans woman so in the history who, of the domination. So but then who is the monster that made everyone vote on your job? I I don't know. Well, no, that was, I don't, I, that was, that's just kind of the way Baptist congregations work. Like I was voted in, you know, there wasn't like a HR committee or mm. a CEO or somebody that said you got the job there. When I, after I interviewed for the job, they presented me to the church one evening. They held a vote, like about a hundred people voted. Ninety-six, seven of them said, "Yeah, we want her," and um, that was the job. And so, I knew, and you know, this was one of the things that I, I thought probably would either work to my advantage or be a really interesting part of the story. That there was, like, the church council, the the chair of the board, couldn't say you're fired. They could say we'd like it if you resigned, but I could always say no. I'm not going to do that. Um, and ultimately, I'm as the lead pastor, the way the church was set up, I was employed by the congregation, and so I was subject to their their vote. So what's the time period between you coming out on the live stream and saying, we're going to vote on your job? It was five weeks. So I came out on June 14th, and the vote was held on July 20th. Were you watching the vote on Zoom live? Uh, no, no, because the vote didn't happen that way. Normally, that's the way it would happen. There would be like a called business meeting, and there would be probably for something that kind of sensitive, there would be a ballot and not just a show of hands. Oh, good. It's terrible. Um, but, but because of social distancing, they actually set up balloting in the church parking lot, and folks drove through during the day to cast their votes. And What were you doing during that time? Um, well, I voted. Um, cause How'd I, you vote? <laughs> it's like survivor i wanted to stay it's, yeah it's, yeah it's it's, yeah. it's dehumanizing in a way. um so my my friend jeff rock the pastor at, at he's my boss now too at metropolitan community church of toronto um just been a phenomenal ally through the whole process we actually met for the first time about three years ago and he was one of the first people that i said you know i think i'm, I'm on this journey i want you to know who i am and um he said to me on that day, like, June, you're, you're going to have a lot on your mind. Let's go get dinner. And so he took me out to a really nice dinner near my house. And we were sitting on a patio having a bottle of wine and some, you know, a, a nice Italian dinner when I got a call from the chair of the church council to let me know the vote. And Oof. I had a little cry there on the patio. But, you know, I, it, it's, it's been, it was hard, but I've also tried to you know, I, I, as wounded as I feel sometimes just by not just that experience, but there's just a whole chain of things that, you know, growing up in the church and being like having that be a big part of my life sort of set me back. Um, but I've tried to focus on, you know, what do I do next? And well, so the 58 out of 111 people voted yeah. to fire you. That's 50 right. of them said it was for religious reasons. My yeah. question to you is what is the other eight? 
well, I don't know. They just wanted me gone. And, and that's actually, you know, it's kind of funny because in, you know, the church has consistently said, um, you know, a majority of the congregation determined for um, theological reasons that she shouldn't be the pastor anymore. When in reality, like, okay, 50 people voted for me to be fired for theological reasons. 53 people voted for me to stay. Eight people voted just get rid of her. Um, and, and just get rid of her a month after she comes out as trans is a pretty clear violation of uh, human rights code. I agree. So I think I was trying to play devil's advocate here, and I was thinking, okay, well, they could say we traditionally don't have female priests, so that's yeah. our reason, but they have had lots of female yeah, priests. Yeah, well, um, it's kind of funny. We were just, we had been celebrating our 100th anniversary, um, and we'd had a number of guest preachers about once a month, folks who had grown up in the church, folks who had connections to the church, and We'd had a woman who is the director of a, of a Christian nonprofit in the Toronto area, and she had grown up in the church, and she came and preached. And, like, the first 10 minutes of her sermon were all about how wonderful it was being able to grow up in a place like Lorne Park where nobody ever made her believe that she couldn't be a leader or couldn't be a minister on account of her gender. And she said, you know, I commend you for being the type of church that, that welcomes women as pastors. And um, before me, Lauren Park had never had a, a, a woman as senior pastor, but there had been a number of ordained women on staff, including um, when I started there, there was, um, we had an associate pastor who um, was such a great help to me when I started my job, and she had been an ordained senior pastor at another church in, in the same denomination. So again, we've been doing it my old denomination had been ordaining women to pastoral ministry since the 1940s. So. so I guess the argument is then, is there a basis of religious interpretation to say that the church isn't cool with trans people? Because you really are discerning God's will, and then you usually turn to some sort of scripture. I know yeah. there's one they always do for the gay guys, but is there a trans? You, you know, it's really message? interesting, um, and, and this has been one reason that I've, I've not had, I haven't, you know, I haven't actually come out uh, as being one sexual orientation or another. I've tried to leave that out of conversations. You know, in part, that's like nobody's business. But in part, like I'm trying to make sure that we just kind of focus on gender identity stuff. And, and really, you know, there's... In, in, now, I, I think that these passages of Scripture are traditionally misunderstood, taken out of context, misinterpreted, but, but it does seem like Scripture does have more to say about what we would call sexual orientation than it does gender identity. Um, it's very difficult. I, I believe, and you know, it's, it's very hard to make a case that the Bible says anything about transgender people one way or the other. Um, it's often cited, uh, there's a verse in Genesis during creation where it says, you know, God made them male and female, and that's so vague, you know, it's like that has absolutely nothing to do with your gender identity. You know, just to say God made male and female. Well, God made day and night, but there's still dawn and there's still dusk. God made 
the sea and dry land. Well, what's a swamp exactly? You know, like it, the undertones. So it's not. Yeah, the undertones are usually conformity because it's an yeah. old old book. So I guess I'm trying to figure out if the people that said it was for religious exemption, if I sat them all down here and said, "What is that based on?" I think they would just be uncomfortable with. I think so who too. Wasn't I have never heard. I mean, I I just do not believe there is a sound um, scriptural argument against trans people. I, I, you know, when, when fundamentalists, when people who interpret the scripture or misinterpret the scripture, will lift a verse and say, well, this, this is about gay people. Um, again, I think they're mishandling the scripture, but I mean, they can say, well, the Bible says right here, and I can say, well, you know, the next chapter says that slaves are, slavery is cool. So maybe we should, maybe we should ask different questions of the text, but there's, there's not a passage that's like, if you're assigned male at birth, you can't be a woman. There's no passage that says you can't be trans. There's no passage. There's a passage in Leviticus, I think, that talks about cross-dressing. Um, but even that's like, I don't know. It's it's next to a verse that says if you build a house, you have to put parapets around the roof. And it's funny because like I walk around my neighborhood and people don't have parapets on their roof. And I assume these are religious people who believe in God and go to church and yet they're flagrantly disobeying the scriptures. And so I think why it would probably, and tell me if I'm wrong, why it would feel so personal is that like you were preaching to these people every week and mm -hmm. you were informing their worldview to a degree. And then it, when it came time, yeah, I'm sure you taught them love and acceptance and community. Yeah. And when it came time to address something that had no theological basis, they just, and again, it's not all of them, but some of them just saw you as something, someone who didn't conform. Yeah. And they had a, a general, I don't know, visceral feeling or something and just voted you off. And I think that's what a lot of LGBT people have with religion is they say that, like, there, there's a hatefulness in that. And yeah, to say there, that, there like, certainly is. If, if it's not based on God, if you can't find any reason, then you just truly have something inside you that sees me change gender and says, nope. Yeah. And that's the part I think would probably be tough for you. Yeah, I, you know, and I think that there are some, I would say, like aberrant worldviews that that are religiously motivated. That, like I said, you can go to scripture and say, "Well, this is why." I mean, there's a scripture in um, Corinthians that says, "Like women ought to be silent in church," and there are fundamentalists that read that and take it absolutely literally. And, and so they say, okay, women, no, no woman can be a minister. And, you know, gosh, I, a lot of Christians on the planet, I mean, when you consider the Roman Catholic Church doesn't really recognize the full um, leadership abilities of women, Southern Baptists are the same way. Like, you know, there are people that can say this is what we believe. Um, but then there are a lot of beliefs that folks are just like, I don't like that. Now give me a reason why I can say that God is against it. I, you know, I, I had someone send me a message on Instagram recently saying, um, I saw your story. It's really inspiring. I need a pastor to write me a religious exemption letter so I don't have to wear a mask in public. <laughs> and like, that's a thing. There yeah. are, there are like Catholic bishops and priests and other from other faiths too, other denominational traditions in the States that are essentially saying, I'll write you a letter saying it's against your religion to wear a mask. And it's, it's unfortunate that religion becomes this unquestionable, un, inscrutable kind of thing. And, and if I say, well, 
you know, I know it's a matter of public safety, but my faith teaches me that I can't wear a mask. It's kind of hard for somebody to say, well, that's not true because who knows? You know, I, I think it's garbage. It's, it's weaponized. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of people have rightly said, well, you know, we got to question this. And that's, that's kind of what my lawsuit is about, but on a, on a different scale, it's saying, well, you can say you're doing this for theological reasons, but uh, well, I think you're going to push back on that. I'm no lawyer, but I think your lawsuit's a slam dunk because I, I have no idea. I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like a slam dunk. So why is it $200,000? What is that number based on? Um, well, it's based on legal counsel, essentially. Like I'm not, I'm not looking to like make a ton of money or anything. Um, but in terms of employment law, there are, there, there's a lot of precedent. There are, <laughs> there, there are essentially certain, I don't know, damages or, or whatever that have kind of typical ranges. And the legal counsel I'm working with is saying this is this is all pretty reasonable. So it, it wasn't me. I didn't sit down with them and say, get me $200,000. And, you, you know, I've had some, and I don't know, like I don't, I don't want to make too much of this, but I've had some folks say, I'm surprised you're not asking for more because it's, it's really not about the money for me. Um, and, and that felt like a, I, I trust my legal counsel that that's a, a reasonable and, and even kind of modest. So um, is it based on emotional distress or loss of income or both? It's a little bit of both. Yeah, it's it's a couple different categories. And I don't have the copy in front of me, but um, I know that, I, I guess it's probably a matter of public record at this point. Yeah, it would be. And so... Um, like Put it in the show notes, Chevy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's 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 probably thirty something pages, um, and I mean I've read through it, but um, I don't I don't have all those figures memorized. But there are a number of different things that say okay, yeah, like emotional distress, loss of income, future loss of income, stuff like that. I think. And so is it? This is why I said it's slim dunk because I believe the Ontario Human Rights Code would say that you can't discriminate against someone based on their gender or sexual identity. Yeah. I, would, I would imagine it's it's close to that. So what is their defense? Um, I think their defense is going to be or is that there are certain places where religious organizations or religious entities are exempt from certain parts of the human rights code on theological grounds. And, and I would say, yeah, I mean, that, that is typically the way the world works. Like, I think one of the questions that, I don't want, you know, for example, I mentioned, you know, Roman Catholicism, you can't be a priest if you're a woman, right? And, and nobody, and I'm not trying to make a world where, when, I'm not trying to, with my lawsuit, like force, say, Roman Catholics to have women priests. I mean, I think it would be pretty cool if they did, but that's kind of beyond. It's not your battle, yeah. Yeah, it's not it. my battle. And and they have a very long standing, very clearly articulated Obviously, like, I mean, they've, they've saved their receipts and they've basically said, this really is part of our religious dogma. Um, transphobia like this is not part of anything that I understood or that was articulated to be the, the religious faith of, of both Canadian Baptists of Ontario and Quebec or Lorne Park Baptist Church. Now, they were, you know, there, there were places where I think the denomination was homophobic, but they weren't transphobic or they didn't articulate transphobia. And so, you know, honestly, if, if at the end of the day, more churches would say, 
you can't work here if you're not cis and, and say, you know, we believe that you can't work here if you're not cis and just make that part of their, their doctrine. And so folks know it. I think they would be okay. You know, I think it sucks, but just like a church can say, you can't be the pastor here if you're a woman, because that's what we believe. But in this case, it's like I came out as trans and then they decided, wait, that's not okay. Of course. There wasn't anything. They, they've kind of pulled this doctrine out of the air and said, this is our theology. It's just so interesting because your job is to speak and you can speak the same. Nothing changed. Yeah. And well, yeah. there were, you know, like it's not and, like your and, job performance changed. You know, one of the, you know, unfortunately, one of the, one of the, I guess, side stories that gets lost in the shuffle is that, you know, half of the congregation said she can stay, you know, I, I, and, and, uh, I heard from lots of folks who said, this doesn't change anything. I, I heard from folks who said, well, I don't quite understand this, but I'm willing to walk this path if you are, and we can learn together. And yeah, that was totally fine with me. There were, there were folks who had absolutely no problem with it. And a lot of folks and, and, you know, any place else, um, a Baptist congregation where 50-something people say, it's okay that our minister is trans. That's a big deal. And, and um, I, you know, if, if I had done that, well, if, 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 the, if, the, if the circumstances had been different, if, if they hadn't known me for six years, for example, if, if they didn't know that I was pretty good at my job, if they hadn't been giving me consistently favorable evaluations for six years, it might have been a harder thing. But I was somebody that they knew and, and loved. So some, and, you were somebody to those people that voted for you to keep your job. Yeah. And that's like what we always forget in all this is that like there's merit there that you were good at your job. Yeah. Nothing, nothing else changed at all. So it really is just a group of people that are unwilling to go on that journey with you. Yeah. It's tough. It was. Yeah, it, it, it was. And uh, I hope that whatever else happens, that 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 things change. You know, I the thing I keep thinking is that, you know, both he, here in Canada and in the States, this is kind of the, this is the edge of the, the argument about LGBTQ plus rights. It's like, well, yeah, okay, this is enshrined in law in many cases. I mean, it's, it's the law both here in Canada and in the States that like you can't be fired for being trans, but they have this little asterisk beside it. They say, well, you know what, religious, if, if, if people think God want you to be fired for being trans, then, then we'll let them break the law because they think God wants them to it break the like law. It seems like an excuse. And yeah, well, it, it is, and I, it's an excuse to for fear of the unknown. Yeah, and and you know, like I said, regardless of the outcome, like I just want to fight against that because um, I, I think that that way of being deserves to be questioned. You know, there there are again, like just about every social movement towards greater acceptance, towards greater liberation, towards freedom, has been. Um, opposed by religious people on religious grounds. Now, I, like I said, I grew up Baptist. The Southern Baptist Convention was literally founded as a pro-slavery organization, and they said, and, and there were there were really brilliant leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention who were white supremacists who said, "I'm going to write this pamphlet describing the reasons that God ordained slavery as the natural status for black people." 
And and so they had religious reasons, theological reasons for for owning other human beings, but when slavery was outlawed, they couldn't say, well, I'm not going to listen to that law because God says it's okay. Or there were, there were Baptist leaders and there were Christian leaders who said that, that segre- racial segregation was the will of God, that God created us in different races and sent us to different countries and we shouldn't try to blend. And I mean, even growing up, uh, you know, in, in Sunday school and youth group, one of the things that we were told was sinful or that we shouldn't do was date somebody of a different race, oh. you know? And, and so there was this notion that God wants the races to not be mixed. And, but when the civil rights act was passed, churches couldn't say, well, we're not going to listen to those laws because we believe God wants us to disobey them. Um, and so, you know, like I said, regardless of the outcome of this suit, I think the sense that, yeah, this is illegal. This is something we've decided as society shouldn't be okay. Um, if I come out at TD, if I come out at like, you know, Toronto schools, if I come out anywhere, they can't fire me because it's illegal, but the church wants special permission to do something that is against our constitution, essentially. Um, I, I think that, that, that entitledness, that special permission that, yeah, we can, we can sidestep these rules for civil, decent, good society and undercut those rules. I think that needs to be fought against win or lose. Uh, I know you got to go here. I just want to ask you one more question. What do you say to an LGBT young person who reads your story and it just confirms all their fears about religion and dissuades them even further from moving towards any sort of religious faith? Um, I hear you. You know, I, I, um, it's tough. I, I think if, if your experience with religion has been traumatic, if, your experience with religious people has been painful. Um, it, it, it's okay to to set up a boundary around that. It's okay to to take care of yourself. You don't have to put yourself in a position where you're going to get hurt more. Um, and so I'm not going to guilt you or, or anything for walking away from religion. Um, in some places, you're probably going to be better off as an LGBTQ plus person. Um, but I would also say, you know, the, the chapter that I'm living out in my story right now is one where, like, I work at a church. I work at an amazing church full of queer people and full of straight people that just want to be in a progressive environment, an accepting environment, full of, like, straight couples that want their kids to grow up being steeped in a, in a, in a tradition that values... Um, inclusivity and social justice. Um, those churches are out there. You know, I've just I've just started taking a course on the history of the metropolitan community churches, and and not just MCCs, but like there are there are churches all around that when they say all are welcome, they mean all are welcome. Um, and so they're out there to be found. If you're one of those folks who just can't walk away from faith um, and you've been hurt in the place that you are, you can find a place. Um, those, those places are there. 
and there are places where healing happens. And I've seen it. I'm, you know, I've, I've only been at MCC Toronto for six months, but if, if you got all the people at MCC Toronto together and sat them down and, and, and said, tell me about how this has been a healing place for you, you would hear stories that would just move your soul. It's and community. It's, it's amazing community. And, and um, you know, part of our history is that it's been community for queer folks for decades and decades since the sixties. And, um, it, it's really, it's really beautiful. Awesome. Um, but those are there, they're, they're there. And you know, they're, I, I help convene a, um, like a support group for trans clergy, for trans ministers and seminary students, students studying to be ministers. And like, there are a lot of us out there and they're more and more every day. So if you're, if you think, you know, maybe I'm trans and maybe I feel called into ministry, like you can do it. Do you want them to contact you? Is it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I always ask guests that because I'm like, I don't open the, Sometimes open the my doors. bandwidth gets a little low and yeah. sometimes I don't know how to respond to folks. But um, generally, yeah, I mean, like when folks reach out to me on, on Twitter or um, any other social media, uh, they go to my website and, you know, sometimes folks will just send me a message and say, hey, I'm a Christian and I really struggled with coming out or something like that. And I, I, I don't really know what else to say other than like, I hear you and it, it's good to thank you for reaching out. Like, I don't, I, I don't have, I don't have space to become everybody's friend necessarily, yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for the ways that okay, well, my story connects. Well, we'll link you. So your website yeah. is pastorjune.com. Yeah. Your Twitter is, J- wait, J.R. Joplin. Yeah, that's my, <laughs> That's yeah. it. I can't even, there's a, you know, there's a piece of food on my, on my screen. <laughs> so I was like, is that an accent? <laughs> J.R. Joplin on Twitter. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, This has been another week of Unmentionable Podcast. We'll talk to you next week.